0: The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar All these events are known to the public. The case was one of those which excite public interest, and it was a strange coincidence that the necklace, which had caused such a great commotion in France at the close of the 18th century, should create a similar commotion a century later. But what I am about to relate is known only to the parties directly interested and a few others from whom the Count exacted a promise of secrecy. As it is probable that some day or other that promise will be broken, I have no hesitation in rending the veil and thus disclosing the key to the mystery, the explanation of the letter published in the morning papers two days ago, an extraordinary letter which increased, if possible, the mists and shadows that envelop this inscrutable drama. Five days ago a number of guests were dining with the Count of Drosubis. There were several ladies present, including his two nieces and his cousin, and the following gentlemen, the president of Esseville, the deputy Bocas, the chevalier Floriani, whom the Count had known in Sicily, and General Marquis de Rousière, an old club friend. After the repast, coffee was served by the ladies, who gave the gentlemen permission to smoke their cigarettes, provided they would not desert the salon. The conversation was general, and finally one of the guests chanced to speak of celebrated crimes, and that gave the Marquis de Roussiere, who delighted to tease the count, an opportunity to mention the affair of the queen's necklace, a subject that the count detested. Each one expressed his own opinion of the affair, and of course their various theories were not only contradictory but impossible. And you, monsieur, said the countess to the Chevalier Floriani. "'What is your opinion?' "'Oh, I... I have no opinion, madame.' All the guests protested, for the Chevalier had just related in an entertaining manner various adventures in which he had participated with his father, a magistrate at Palermo, and which established his judgment and taste in such matters. "'I confess,' said he, "'I have sometimes succeeded in unravelling mysteries that the cleverest detectives have renounced.' yet I do not claim to be Sherlock Holmes. Moreover, I know very little about the affair of the Queen's necklace. Everybody now turned to the Count, who was thus obliged, quite unwillingly, to narrate all the circumstances connected with the theft. The Chevalier listened, reflected, asked a few questions, and said, It is very strange. At first sight, the problem appears to be a very simple one. The Count shrugged his shoulders. The others drew closer to the Chevalier, who continued in a dogmatic tone. As a general rule, in order to find the author of a crime or a theft, it is necessary to determine how that crime or theft was committed, or at least how it could have been committed. In the present case, nothing is more simple, because we are face to face, not with several theories, but with one positive fact, that is to say, the thief could only enter by the chamber door... "'or the window of the cabinet. "'Now, a person cannot open a bolted door from the outside, "'therefore he must have entered through the window.' "'But it was closed and fastened, "'and we found it fastened afterward,' declared the Count. "'In order to do that,' continued Floriani, "'without heeding the interruption,' He had simply to construct a bridge, a plank, or a ladder between the balcony of the kitchen and the ledge of the window, and as the jewel case, But I repeat that the window was fastened, exclaimed the Count impatiently. This time Floriani was obliged to reply. He did so with the greatest tranquility, as if the objection was the most insignificant affair in the world. I will admit that it was, but is there not a transom in the upper part of the window? How do you know that? In the first place that was customary in houses of that date, and in the second place, without such a transom the theft cannot be explained. Yes, there is one, but it was closed, the same as the window. Consequently we did not pay attention to it. That was a mistake, for if you had examined it, you would have found that it had been opened. But how? I presume that, like all others, it opens by means of a wire with a ring on the lower end? Yes, but I do not see Now, through a hole in the window, a person could, by the aid of some instrument, let us say a poker with a hook at the end, "'Grip the ring, pull down, and open the transom. The Count laughed and said, "'Excellent, excellent. Your scheme is very cleverly constructed, "'but you overlook one thing, monsieur. There is no hole in the window.' "'There was a hole. Nonsense. We would have seen it. "'In order to see it, you must look for it. And no one has looked. "'The hole is there. It must be there, at the side of the window, in the putty.' In a vertical direction, of course. The count arose. He was greatly excited. He paced up and down the room two or three times in a nervous manner, then, approaching Floriani, said, Nobody has been in that room since. Nothing has been changed. Very well, monsieur. You can easily satisfy yourself that my explanation is correct. It does not agree with the facts established by the examining judge. You have seen nothing, and yet you contradict all that we have seen and all that we know. Floriani paid no attention to the count's petulance. He simply smiled and said, Mon dieu, monsieur, I submit to my theory, that is all. If I am a mistake, you can easily prove it. I will do so at once. I confess that your assurance. The count muttered a few more words, then suddenly rushed to the door and slipped out. Not a word was uttered in his absence. And this profound silence gave the situation an air of almost tragic importance. Finally, the Count returned. He was pale and nervous. He said to his friends, in a trembling voice, I, I beg your pardon. The revelations of the Chevalier was so unexpected. I should never have thought. His wife questioned him eagerly. Speak! What is it? He stammered. The, the hole the whole is there. At the very spot, at the side of of the window. He seized the chevalier's arm and said to him in an imperious tone, Now, monsieur, proceed. I admit that you are right so far, but now, that is not all. Go on, tell us the rest of it. Floriani disengaged his arm gently and, after a moment, continued. Well, in my opinion, this is what happened. The thief, knowing that the countess was going to wear the necklace that evening, had prepared the gangway or bridge during your absence. He watched you through the window and saw you hide the necklace. Afterwards, he cut the glass and pulled the ring. Ah, but the distance was so great that it would be impossible for him to reach the window fastening through the transom. Well then, if he could not open the window by reaching through the transom, he must have crawled through the transom. Impossible. It is too small. No man could crawl through it. Then it was not a man, declared Floriani. What? If the transom is too small to admit a man, it must have been a child. A child? Did you not say that your friend Henriette had a son? Yes, a son named Raoul. Then, in all probability, it was Raoul who committed the theft. What proof have you of that? "'What proof? Plenty of it. For instance,' he stopped and reflected for a moment, then continued, "'for instance, the gangway or bridge. It is improbable that the child could have brought it in from outside the house and carried it away again without being observed. He must have used something close at hand. In the little room used by Henriette as a kitchen—' "'Were they not some shelves against the wall on which she placed her pans and dishes?' Two shelves, to the best of my memory. "'Are you sure that those shelves are really fastened to the wooden brackets that support them? "'For if they are not, we could be justified in presuming that the child removed them, "'fastened them together, and thus formed his bridge.' "'Perhaps also, since there was a stove, "'we might find the bent poker that he used to open the transom.' "'Without saying a word, the Count left the room, "'and this time those present did not feel the nervous anxiety "'they had experienced the first time. "'They were confident that Floriani was right, "'and no one was surprised when the Count returned and declared, "'It was the child. Everything proves it.' "'You have seen the shells in the poker?' "'Yes.' The shelves have been unnailed, and the poker is there yet. But the countess exclaimed, You had better say it was his mother. Henriette is the guilty party. She must have compelled her son. No, declared the chevalier. The mother has nothing to do with it. Nonsense. They occupied the same room. The child could not have done it without the mother's knowledge. True, they lived in the same room, but all this happened in the adjoining room during the night when the mother was asleep. And the necklace, said the Count, it would have been found amongst the child's things. pardon me, he had been out. That morning, on which you found him reading, he had just come from school, and perhaps the commissary of police, instead of wasting his time on the innocent mother, would have been better employed in searching the child's desk amongst his school books. But how do you explain those two thousand francs that Henriette received each year? Are they not evidence of her complicity? If she had been an accomplice, would she have thanked you for that money? And then, was she not closely watched? But a child, being free, could easily go to a neighbouring city, negotiate with some dealer, and sell him one diamond or two diamonds, as he might wish, upon condition that the money should be sent from Paris, and that proceeding could be repeated from year to year. An indescribable anxiety oppressed the Drusubis and their guests. There was something in the tone and attitude of Floriani, something more than the Chevalier's assurance which, from the beginning, had so annoyed the count. There was a touch of irony that seemed rather hostile than sympathetic. But the count affected to laugh as he said, "'All that is very ingenious and interesting, and I congratulate you upon your vivid imagination.' "'No!' "'No, not at all,' replied Floriani with the utmost gravity. "'I imagine nothing. "'I simply describe the events as they must have occurred. "'But what do you know about them? "'What do you yourself have told me? "'I picture to myself the life of the mother and child down there in the country, "'the illness of the mother, the schemes of and inventions of the child "'to sell the precious stones in order to save his mother's life "'or at least soothe her dying moments.' her illness overcomes her, she dies, years roll on, the child becomes a man, and then, and now I will give my imagination a free reign, let us suppose that the man feels a desire to return to the home of his childhood, that he does so, and that he meets there certain people who suspect and accuse his mother. Do you realize the sorrow and anguish of such an interview in the very house wherein the original drama was played? His words seemed to echo for a few seconds in the ensuing silence, and one could read upon the faces of the count and countess de Dreux a bewildered effort to comprehend his meaning and, at the same time, the fear and anguish of such a comprehension. The count spoke at last and said, Who are you, monsieur? I, the Chevalier Floriani whom you met at Palermo, and whom you have been gracious enough to invite to your house on several occasions. Then what does this story mean? Oh, nothing at all. It is simply a pastime, so far as I am concerned. I endeavour to depict the pleasure that Henriette's son, if he still lives, would have in telling you that he was the guilty party, and that he did it because his mother was unhappy, as she was on the point of losing the place of a servant by which she lived, and because of the child suffered at sight of his mother's sorrow. He spoke with suppressed emotion, rose partially, and inclined towards the countess. There could be no doubt that the Chevalier Floriani was Henriette's son. His attitude and words proclaimed it. Besides, was it not his obvious intention and desire to be recognized as such? The count hesitated. What action would he take against this audacious guest? Ring? Provoke a scandal? Unmask the man who had once robbed him? But that was a long time ago. And who would believe that absurd story about the guilty child? No, better far to accept the situation and pretend not to comprehend the true meaning of it. So the Count, turning to Floriani, exclaimed, Your story is very curious, very entertaining. I enjoyed it very much. But what do you think has become of this young man, this model son? I hope he has not abandoned the career in which he made such a brilliant debut. Oh, certainly not. After such a debut, to steal the queen's necklace at six years of age, the celebrated necklace that was coveted by Marie Antoinette." "And to steal it," remarked Floriani, falling in with the count's mood, "without costing him the slightest trouble, without anyone thinking to examine the condition of the window, or to observe that the window sill was too clean, that window sill which he had wiped, in order to efface the marks that he had made in the thick dust. We must admit that it was sufficient to turn the head of a boy at that age. It was all so easy. Yet simply to desire the thing, and reach out his hand to get it? And he reached out his hand. Both hands, replied the Chevalier, laughing. His companions received a shock. What mystery surrounded the life of the so-called Floriani? How wonderful must have been the life of that adventurer, a thief at six years of age, and who, today, in search of excitement, or, at most, to gratify a feeling of resentment, had come to brave his victim in her own house, audaciously, foolishly, and yet with all the grace and delicacy of a courteous guest. He arose and approached the countess to bid her adieu. She recoiled unconsciously. He smiled. Oh, madame, you are afraid of me. Did I pursue my role of... Parlor magician a step too far. She controlled herself and replied with her accustomed ease, Not at all, monsieur. The legend of that dutiful son interested me very much, and I am pleased to know that my necklace had such a brilliant destiny. But do you not think that the son of that woman, that Henriette, was the victim of hereditary influence in the choice of his vocation? He shuddered, feeling the point, and replied, I am sure of it and, moreover, his natural tendency to crime must have been very strong, or he would have been discouraged. Why so? Because, as you must know, the majority of the diamonds were false. The only genuine stones were the few purchased from the English jeweller, the others having been sold one by one to meet the cruel necessities of life. It was still the Queen's necklace, Monsieur, replied the Countess, haughtily and that is something that he, Henriette's son, could not appreciate. He was able to appreciate, madame, that whether true or false, the necklace was nothing more than an object of parade, an emblem of a senseless pride. The count made a threatening gesture, but his wife stopped him. Monsieur, she said, if the man to whom you allude has the slightest sense of honour, she stopped, intimidated by Floriani's cool manner. "'If that a man has the slightest a sense of honor, he repeated. "'She felt that she would not gain anything by speaking to him in that manner, "'and in spite of her anger and indignation, "'trembling as she was from humiliated pride, "'she said to him almost politely, "'Monsieur, the legend says that Rétaud de Villette, "'when in possession of the Queen's necklace, "'did not disfigure the mounting. "'He understood that the diamonds were simply the ornament, the accessory.' and that the mounting was the essential work, the creation of the artist, and he respected it accordingly. Do you think that this man had the same feeling? I have no doubt that the mounting still exists. The child respected it. Well, monsieur, if you happen to meet him... Will you tell him that he unjustly keeps possession of a relic that is the property and pride of a certain family, and that, although the stones have been removed, the queen's necklace still belongs to the house of Drusebiz. It belongs to us as much as our name or our honor. The chevalier replied simply, I shall tell him, madame. He bowed to her, saluted the count and the other guests, and departed. Four days later, the Countess of Drew found upon the table in her chamber a red leather case bearing the cardinal's arms. She opened it and found the queen's necklace. But, as all things must in the life of a man who strives for unity and logic converge toward the same goal, and as a little advertising never does any harm, on the following day the Écho de France published these sensational lines. The Queen's Necklace, the famous historical jewel stolen from the family of Drosubis, has been recovered by Arsène Lupin, who hastened to restore it to its rightful owner. We cannot too highly commend such a delicate and chivalrous act.